Everywhere you go, everywhere you look, you find color in your life. The color of the sky, the mountains, and the countryside. People often use colors to brighten the world in which they live, and for other good reasons as well. What a drab place the world would be if there were no colors. It would be a drab place without any colors. Thank heavens then for us gardeners. It would also be a very drab place without gardening podcasts. So thank heavens for the return of Dear Gardener, the world's most gardening podcast. It's a slightly different one today, a diary episode. In the feed from now on, these will show up as solo episodes. Though if you are historically minded and you came with me from the last podcast, you can think of them to yourselves as garden log episodes in which I talk about the week in horticulture, things I have seen, observed, thought and wondered about. This one of course will be slightly different because I haven't talked to you for a very long time so it'll be more of a month in horticulture, season in horticulture, new year 2023 in horticulture. I've been doing a huge amount of seed work, which has been very enjoyable. It's not something that I had spent a huge amount of time doing when running large gardens, because it is just not a practical use of time. Wages being what they are, gardeners' hours are better spent driving to a nursery and buying plants than sowing, distributing, perlighting, watering, pricking out, potting on, plonking in, wondering and worrying about little, little plants when you have a grower's guarantee on the ones that come from the nursery. But now I am liberated. Now I am able to work on my own. And it has been incredibly enjoyable. I've always been one from the school of doing less gardening, doing more looking at gardens, which is gaining popularity every day. There's a new book. I haven't read it yet, but it looks very, very good. And I really will read it by Andrew Timothy O'Brien called To Stand and Stare, How to Garden While Doing Absolutely Nothing. And I have been a proponent of that kind of kind of uh, gardening for a long time. When I had the book launch for my last book, my brother was talking to one of the people who used to work for me at the bar for a long time. And I asked him afterwards what they'd been talking about. And he said, oh, he was just explaining how you're not not really as good as gardener as you think you are. And you have good ideas and you like to think about it, but you need to just spend more time actually doing gardening. And I thought, well, yes, that's probably that's probably fair enough. Now I have spent some time doing gardening and it's been lovely. The, the, the seed sowing and pricking out is a very special part of the process because it's such delicate brain surgeon bomb diffusery kind of work you have this incredibly thin thing you're working with technically not even a stem it's a it's a hypocotyl a hypocotyledonous stem the bit beneath the seed leaves and it could break at any moment and you're working instead of a scalpel with a pencil pricking into the ground wheeling these things out making a new space for them this is going to be quite a, a recommendation-y kind of 
bramble through what I've been doing in terms of planting and listening as well. I've been listening to a different podcast, a new podcast called the, I can't remember what it's called. It's from Guns Illustrated. And uh, it's the format is a sort of Desert Island Discs of Gardening, a set series of questions. What would you take with you to your perfect garden? What plant couldn't you do without? What tool would you have? Which is a lovely idea, one that has been suggested to me in the past. You should really do that as a podcast, and now has gone. Anyway, they've set up a new podcast. It's got all the great and the good of horticulture. No appearance from me yet, but Tom Stewart Smith and Fergus Garrett and Jekka McVicker have all been on recently. And... One of the people they had first, in fact the first, was Fergus Garrett. And he was talking about his seed-sowing days at Dixter when he would go down in the evening with a drink and some music and a big fire and really get set into serious work. Hands busy, mind busy. It's a great place to be. I do quite a bit of it in the evening, actually. Sometimes a glass of red wine, something to listen to, and dip that pencil in and out, put the seedlings in their new place. Very, very satisfying indeed. The other really good thing from that Fergus Garrett episode was when he talked about he wanted a garden with a bit of baling twine about it. I thought that was perfect. What a great way to describe a Dixter aesthetic. A little bit of the baling twine about it. Reminds me of the various summers I have spent going to work with my trousers held up by a bit of string between two belt holes. Anyway, I've done all the normal early spring stuff, cut back the buddlier very hard so it looks like a load of flamingo legs without the flamingo body on top. I cut back the little bed, the dry bed underneath the window. It was quite nice to get back down into the gardener's crouch. I've talked about this, I think, in the past before, but different people have different stances for weeding. And Christopher Lloyd was famously all fours, large bottom in the air, in the borders, and disdained macho professional gardeners, those of us who affected some wide-legged, swaggering stance, bending at the waist. Well, I've always found the best one to do is a little crouch, a little sink onto the thighs. And... As soon as I got back into that position, I felt old gardening thoughts, old gardening urges coming back. I think the body is a repository of memory as much as the mind, and it feels things for us. It's funny, when I think of landscaping, I get an example of this. When I think of hard landscaping and working on it, the middle finger of my... No, it's not the middle finger. It is the middle finger. It's the middle finger of my left hand throbs from when I was trying to chop a brick in half using a spade and took the spade, put it upright, held the brick in my hand, whacked it down on the spade blade with my finger between the two of them. The nail fell off and the finger swelled up. And I still think it's, it's permanently larger as a result. And it's a reminder of of jobs done years ago, forgotten until it starts repeating on me. There's a buzzsaw going on, interrupting my little little finger monologue, but hopefully that just adds to the ambience of this whole thing. There's a similar thing. Apparently George Eliot thought that she had a, a permanently enlarged hand from milking cows when she was doing more of her her dairy-made stuff. And I wonder if whenever she saw it, she thought of those years, those early years before, before Elliot the Maverick writer. 
People are so fond of flowers that many farmers grow them as a crop. Millions of farm-grown flowers are shipped all over the country throughout the year to brighten our homes and hearts. So I have been squatting and weeding and becoming reacquainted with gardening and gardening thoughts. I've also been... Oh, it's really loud, that buzz. I don't have time to re-record this, I'm afraid. I can't reschedule. We'll have to think of that as the buzzing of a, of a nest of bees or something, something more bucolic. Anyway, I've been watching The Gardener's World, which I never used to do, but I've enjoyed it immensely. I particularly liked the first episode where Monty Don was taking us through the horrible casualties of winter. He was almost like one of those generals at dawn on the ramparts of a city that had been fighting for its life all night, surveying his wounded troops, reading out the roll call and saying, Stevens. And from Stevens, of course, no answer there comes. Amenanthale? Amenanthale Lessoniana? Sad shake of the head. It lives no longer. Anyway, those are all gone, the Amenanthale Lessoniana, from his garden. He plans to replace them with irises which are having a very big moment at the moment. There's a lot of Cedric Morris feeling going around with the Garden Museum, acquisition of Benton End, a lot of iris in the air. I'm sensing a shift, a shift that's in the air almost before people are putting words to it. There's a great T.E. Hulm essay about the swings between classicism and romanticism. And he's talking in an era that has regarded itself as newly rediscovering a spirit of classicism, looking back on the, the Victorians. And he's talking about how there were a lot of people who simply couldn't abide Swinburne before they started thinking about these things. You get it in the air, you get one of those then sensations that things are shifting. And I think things are shifting away from grasses and prairie and there's a swing towards the iris, the gravel. I'm obviously not immune. I read a whole chapter about them in my book. Still on sale, by the way, and now out in paperback. That's a little, a little plug to make the publishers happy. Make me happy, though, if you did go and buy one of those. The best bit in that episode of Gardener's World, well, I, I really liked it anyway, was a lovely, lovely man, really, really nice, and I admire him fully, who's bought a ruined botanical garden up in, up in Scotland somewhere and is restoring it and fully admits that he doesn't know anything about horticulture. And he's going through the old greenhouses, looking at labels, reading them out, and he finds one that says, em, Emenopteris... Henry II and moves on and I don't know if it's a joke on his part or the producer's part or if none of them saw it but it's obviously that's the botanical convention on someone's name used as the, the second part of the binomial it's Henry I so it's an Emenopterous Henry I found by Henry and the idea of calling it Henry II I thought was lovely I'm going to be doing that whenever I see a, a Henry I in the future they spell it Y I now I think but old school when that greenhouse would have been in production it would have been I I there's a clematis Henry I think and a lily lily Henry I let me let me anyway it doesn't matter doesn't matter you probably want to know what kind of seeds I have been sowing 
I sowed quite a good morning glory, a tropical one, Ipomia noctiflora, which should have bright, big, moth-pollinated flowers opening strongly scented at night time. I'm told that it won't really flower well through the summer because it is one of those plants that is equal length day and night, a proper tropical plant. But I have it in bud now on the windowsill. I've left it inside all this time, let it climb around some twigs I pruned from the apple tree, and it is budding heavily, ready to open, which would be nice. I hope it fills the room with scent. I've sowed some salvia, some salvia scoria variant Togastanica, which is a lovely plant, huge, great brash leaves and these metallic-y spikes of flower. Some euphorbia, that's euphorbia oblongata. Is it oblongata? It is. Euphorbia oblongata. That's the perfectly uh, square euphorbia. It's, <laughs> it's not a square euphorbia. It's a nice little euphorbia, a nice perennial plant, a bit like euphorbia polychroma, I think. I sowed some tropiolum peregrinum, the canary creeper, that relative of the nasturtium with bright yellow flowers. That was a disaster. I have none of them. I don't know what happened. They didn't germinate. I soaked them well, as one does with a big seed like that, and put them in this rather strange compost that I inherited from someone who was leaving the city and couldn't take their compost that they'd made with them. And this compost, lovely, lovely stuff, but I think he'd gone through several recycling batches used for tomatoes, used for other things, and been mixed with houseplant stuff. And I put these nasturtium relative seeds in there. Nothing came up. And eventually I succumbed to that gardener's urge to start prodding, to start rooting around, to start knocking any emergent roots off by digging in there with a pen or a pencil. And when I turned over these seeds, I found thousands of little wiry, tiny, thin nightmare grubs underneath them. I think that they were probably just the grubs of the fungus gnat, which wouldn't do any damage at all to an established houseplant. But I think they're in that new soil in such numbers, going for these tiny emergent roots had not helped things. Having said which, I didn't see any evidence in the in the seed coat that it had split and begun to get out there. So maybe maybe they have been unfairly maligned for the failed germination there. More success was had with tomatoes, but then more success always is had with tomatoes. The things germinate so easily. It does make them wonderful plants for the beginner gardener because you can't be disappointed. You can't have tropiolum peregrinum disappointment waves where there is no answer there is no autopsy there's just a well, didn't work kind of feeling tomatoes always seem to germinate i think partly it's probably because we've bred them that way like all of these things that have been so altered from their natural state they have been selected for by humans and one of the things we surely select for in a cultivated tomato is ease of germination, is all at once germination. All at once germination in nature is a stupid idea. It's silly. I mean, it works, I suppose, for, for tropical, not tropical, desert seraphitic super blooms, your California bloom that comes once every once every five years or so then you want everything at once but you don't want everything at once all the time as soon as it hits the ground what if you came all at once and then had a month of drought 
your next generation we wiped out. You want some seeds to be laggards, some seeds to wait a season, some seeds to wait three or, or four weeks to get a spread to avoid all of your seeds in one terrible seedy basket. Anyway, all of the tomato seeds germinated. All of them have now been pricked out, potted on. The hypercotyl on a tomato is, I think it's probably fairly unusual in being able to sprout roots so you can bury it right up to the seed leaves and it'll be fine. I think it sprouts roots. Just trying to think last time I knocked one off. Because burying up to the seed roots is a fine way of dealing with things that have become etiolated. Quite often if your windowsill is sowing like I am, the warmth and the lack of light will cause that hypocotyl, the lower seed stem to go whoosh straight up and then when you come to pot them on if you pot them on at the existing soil level you have this great wobbling thing you're balancing a stick of spaghetti on its small diameter and you don't want that so you bury it up to the seed leaves tomatoes will root i think <laughs> other seedlings won't i planted a load of delaphinium ejacis the little annual larkspur type thing this one's crimson king a reddish rusty variant did the tomato trick buried them up to their seed roots and put them in plugs then moved them on from plugs into nine centimeter pots and found that actually they'd done nothing that hypercotyl does not have the ability to sprout leaves so what i had was a casing around that very long etiolated stem with no roots growing into it it immediately fell apart and i saw that it only rooted into the last centimeter or so the, the bottom centimetre or so of the plugs. So was that damage done to me by the tomatoes? Had I not been playing with the tomatoes the day before, would I have done the same thing? I don't know. Maybe tomatoes are a dangerous, dangerous gateway, gateway seed. Anyway, I'm planting San Marzano, which I'm sure is wildly optimistic. Wildly, wildly optimistic. I do not have the sun of Naples, but we all want that perfect Pomodoro sauce. And so I'm putting that in. And then Gardener's Delight, because that's what I had lying around in seed packets that have been freebied from, from various places. They're downstairs now doing the in-out dance, the tomato seeds. They're in those big plastic tubs that you can get from Ikea which is quite nice because you can take them all out at night. Sorry, put them all in at night like they are precious, precious hens and stack them on top of each other next to the door. You get four cases high. Suddenly there's 60 plants up there all out of the way. And then in the morning you just wander out and put them out in the garden, either with lid on or lid off. So there's a tip. Transparent IKEA boxes. And that's really been my home gardening. Professionally, I haven't done a great deal. I was on the RHS podcast for Earth Day to talk about tulips and, you know, try and flog a few copies of the old book. I think I came across fairly well. It's quite a hard podcast because the interviewer is edited out. So essentially what you need to do is deliver a series of self-contained monologues. But the monologues are in response to an unheard question. So you need to sort of remember to re-say the question in the early part of your answer. Luckily, they have brilliant editors and no buzzsaws in the background, <laughs> so, so they can make you sound lovely. So go and have a listen to that, the RHS Earth Day episode. There's lots of other horticultural type people on that on that episode. God, I'm sorry, that saw. I don't think it is a saw. I don't know what it is. I think he's got a special tool for vibrating a sheet of perspex and making it as loud as possible. 
Oh, well, we're just, we're just going to have to talk over it. We've been doing it for a long time in this house next door. Would you rather have 50 men working for a day or, or one man working for 50 days? And they've gone for the 50, 50 days from one man approach, which is, which is fine. Everyone's got to do things to their house. As a professional lawnmower user, I can't complain ever about noise pollution. Wherever you go, wherever you look, you too will find ways in which colors are useful. I've been wandering around seeking inspiration in, in the places where inspiration normally lurks. This time of year, it tends to lurk in the forests. We're just at canopy close, the magical two weeks beforehand when the leaves are bubbling on the trees. You go through the woods and it almost looks like every branch is admitting this little green gas. It's just so light and delicate. And all of the little woodland ephemerals are there in fantastic numbers. Round here they specialise in Corydalis solida. The bird in a bush, would that be a com the common name? It's the very washed out movie, weird looking Corydalis. It's got a really strange sort of cephalopodic tone to it, both in the flower, which looks squiddy, and in the colour, which looks washed up octopusy in strange whites and purples and gradients and blends. I really, really like it. It's an odd thing to see. It's a poppy relative as well, which you would realise, I suppose, when you start looking at the leaves. But I never had before. A little, a little woodland ephemeral poppy relative in glorious washed out washing day mauve. We had some glorious, glorious sunshine over the weekend but now it's cold um which i like i like the cold i like the wet i like the fact that it keeps spring around for a little bit longer well the cold does the wet <laughs> oh my goodness okay we're going to finish the podcast by listening to some power tools put on some power tool music in the background um thank you for listening to this solo episode of Dear Gardener, apologies for this droning, <laughs> droning racket, but um, we can't. Oh, it stopped. It stopped. Quick, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I wanted to tell you about one great failure that I've had this year, which is in my Lunaria annua, my honesty, which I sowed beginning of last year. It's a biennial, so I'm waiting for it to flower. And I noticed the rosette was looking particularly ghostly. And turns out that I didn't sow Lunaria annua alba. I sowed Lunaria annua variegata alba, which is the variegated Lunaria. I'm not an anti-variegation person. I know people are, still. I think it makes you sound very old-fashioned. Troy Scott Smith on the Guns Illustrated podcast came out as I can't abide variegation anywhere. And I thought, wow, that's really, that's really rare to hear that. You think of that kind of thing as a, as a late 90s, early 2000s kind of thing to say. Quite refreshing to, to hear a little bit of the old school horticultural snobbery going around. Anyway, my, my plants, though, are variegated and they are horrible. Uh, Troy is completely right. They look really, really bizarre. I can see them now. I'm just going to peer over my windowsill. The variegation hides the whiteness of the flowers. 
what, what they look strange at is at night they are sentinel ghosts standing in quite an empty flower bed. This is the flower bed that got trashed when the fence came down and I've repinned the roses to it but a lot of the ground cover stuff got beaten into the dirt and I had to rethink and pull some stuff out anyway. So these are tall ghostly presences on their own and they loom deep into the night like tacky solar-powered candles from from outside a discount supermarket, which again is fun. It's fun. It's fun, but it's not the effect that I was going for. I was thinking I shouldn't be negative, but actually I shouldn't be negative about other people's gardens, but I can be as negative as I like about my own garden. So that's what I can say about that. I'm going to come back and talk to you again next week. It might be another solo episode, I'm afraid. It might be a book review episode. It might be another little montage episode. But until then, I'd really like to hear from you. So do send me an email. You can send me an email at thegardenlogpodcast at gmail.com. I know it's out of date. I need to get a new one of those. You can find me on Twitter at Ben's Garden or on Instagram at TheBenDark. Is that right? It is right. And you can just just say hello. <laughs> and you can send me anything you'd like to say as well. Any questions about gardening, anything to be read out on the podcast. Is it your wife's birthday? Send me some horticultural gossip. If you don't want to read out, then just say off the record. Otherwise, I will be merciless in exposing <laughs> exposing secrets of the industry. And there we go. In duet with my buzzsaw, I say to you again, bye-bye. Have a wonderful week, and thanks for listening. <laughs> bye. These are but a few of the ways we see that colors are useful, working for man and nature alike.